Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Hidden Signs. I'm your host. My name is Jeff Murray. I'm a professor of marketing at the University of Arkansas. In my last episode, I told the story of the paradigm wars in marketing and consumer research. I concluded this episode by explaining that we will be taking an interperigmatic approach to explore and discover hidden signs. Central to this approach is culture. So, in today's episode, I am responding to the question, what is culture? Today's episode is a little longer than the others. This is a challenging question. In 1973, Clifford Geertz wrote a very famous book entitled, The Interpretation of Cultures. A professor at Princeton University, Clifford Geertz was considered one of the most influential cultural anthropologists in the world. When I speak of hidden signs, I am drawing intellectual energy from this person. Professor Geertz was famous for his support and influence on the practice of symbolic anthropology. On page five of this book, he states, the concept culture is essentially a semiotic one believing that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun. I take culture to be those webs, and the analysis of it to be therefore not an experimental science in search of law, but an interpretive one in search of meaning. Note that Professor Geertz uses the phrase webs of significance. This is what I mean by sign systems. History is a layering of these webs of significance. These layers pile up over time, influencing and defining who we are, creating the human condition. Studying culture involves excavating these layers, trying to understand them, turning hidden signs into visible signs. If we could go deep enough, could we find the first sign? Stephen Hawking tells an interesting story at the beginning of his book, A Brief History of Time. He tells the story of a scientist and an old lady. The scientist is finishing his speech about how the earth revolves around the sun. At the end of the speech, the old lady stands up and states, What you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant turtle. The scientist, wanting to engage this interesting person, responds, But what is the turtle standing on? The old lady winks at the scientist. Oh, you're very clever, young man, very clever. The turtle is standing on a much larger turtle. Curious about where this is going? The scientist again responds. But what is this turtle standing on? The old lady smiles with a glint in her eye. Young man, after this, it is turtles all the way down. This story of infinite regress has been told over and over again in different ways by different cultures. It is a story about beginnings about foundations. What was the first sign? Maybe a sound that meant danger. Maybe a simple drawing in the dirt. 
a mark scratched onto the wall of the cave. No one knows. But this first sign led to a second, and third, and a fourth, until we have a sign system. Over time, as a way of remembering, this sign system became abstracted into myth, and this myth was told over and over, passed down from generation to generation. If we multiply this a million times, we have culture. To begin, I'm going to ask you to imagine living in some very different cultural environments. First, picture yourself living with the Kalahari Bushmen in the deserts of southern Africa. This is a harsh environment, hot, dry, and dangerous. The Bushmen are among the last hunting and gathering tribes in the world. Their way of life has remained virtually unchanged for tens of thousands of years. Imagine getting ready for the hunt, crafting a bow and strong straight arrows, Hunting antelope with bow and arrow is a magnificent display of human creativity. Interestingly, the Bushmen's arrows are tipped with poison made from beetle larvae. Producing this poison involves a deep understanding of the natural environment and ecosystems. Even an innate sense of chemical interactions. Now, let's go from the hot, dry desert to the frozen, freezing Arctic. Indigenous people, such as the Inuit population in Alaska and Canada, have inhabited the Arctic for thousands of years. The Inuit hunt sea animals from single-passenger, seal-skin boats. They use dog sleds for transportation across land and ice, and build homes from ice and fur providing shelter from Arctic storms. How does one gain this knowledge? Poison from beetle larvae? Or the use of whale oil to waterproof the seams of a seal-skin boat? This knowledge allows humans to survive in brutal environments. Of course, harsh environments are not just physical. They can also be institutional. Think of the corporation. 70-hour work weeks, on and off airplanes, checking in to cheap hotels, eating on the road, negotiating deal after deal. Life in an organizational hierarchy designed for financial gain and growth. The relentless gears of political economy. Fast capitalism. Think of academia. Years of difficult study to get a PhD. The hollowed halls of isolated professors. Blistering competition to get into the top journals near-impossible goals to reach tenure. Sacrifice after sacrifice to add to the pool of scientific knowledge. How do we survive? The deserts of Africa, the frozen Arctic, corporate culture, the ivory tower. Well, it is culture that allows us to survive. Think of culture as a technology that helps humans negotiate harsh environments. What might start out as a tool for survival? Instrumental technology needed to live. Over time becomes abstracted into myth. These myths or stories are passed down from one generation to the next. 
providing the knowledge that is needed to adapt and build resilience. Think of a teacher, parent, coach, or mentor in your life that has really made a difference for you. When you recall times you had together, you probably think of all the stories this person shared with you. These stories were fun to listen to, but there was so much more here. These stories were preparing you for survival, helping you to find meaning, providing insight into hidden signs. This is a key point about culture. It is passed down from one generation to the next through storytelling. These stories are culture. I can remember my mom reading The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss to me when I was little. Looking back, this is a great book. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house on that cold, cold, wet day. I sat there with Sally. We sat there, we too. And I said, how I wish we had something to do. Too wet to go out and too cold to play ball. So we sat in the house. We did nothing at all. The story begins with a description of boredom. Then, a mysterious cat shows up. And despite the repeated descent of the children's fish, the cat attempts to entertain them. In the process, he and his companions, thing one and thing two, wreck the house in a swirl of chaotic crazy fun. In this story, Dr. Seuss creates an interesting binary opposition. A tension between boredom and chaos. What could we possibly learn here? Well, stories or cultural myths trigger the question, how should we live? In other words, something meaningful is being passed on here. Maybe this story is about living life to the fullest. A life that is too ordered and organized, too regulated, maybe dull, boring, and uneventful. Yet a life that is too wild and chaotic, maybe too precarious and dangerous. The message of the story is that life is a great balancing act. Maybe moderation will help me survive, help me live a long and meaningful life. Remember Green Eggs and Ham? Another one of my favorites, also by Dr. Seuss. This book is about Sam I Am, trying to convince the narrator to try Green Eggs and Ham. He spends most of the story offering the unnamed character different locations and dining partners to try the delicacy. Finally, the unnamed character relents, eats green eggs and ham, and loves it. Again, the story is passing down a message that will help the next generation survive, help them find meaning. Stories pass on values. The message of the story is that if you persevere and refuse to give up, you can accomplish your goals in the end. This message of perseverance might be just what is needed to survive the harsh environments of corporate culture or academia. The millions of stories experienced viscerally and emotionally over and over help individuals internalize the values of their culture so that they can participate, adapt, and become resilient. The children of the Kalahari Bushmen probably hear lots of stories about hunting, and the children of the Alaskan Inuits probably hear lots of stories about ice houses, 
dog sleds racing across the ice, and seal-skin boats. I should note that stories can also disrupt, critique, and contest values. In this sense, they can also be agents of social change. Now, an anthropologist might say, by focusing on storytelling, you are emphasizing non-material culture. Earlier in the podcast, I was emphasizing material culture by talking about poison-tipped arrows or seal-skin boats. This is important. Culture consists of material artifacts and non-material ideas. Usually, the material and non-material go together. They fit comfortably, creating a single phenomenon. Poison-tipped arrows fit comfortably within the historical context of a Kalahari hunting and gathering society. However, as globalization increases, we are exposed to a wider range of material and non-material culture. This tends to fragment culture, increasing complexity, sometimes separating material and non-material culture. For example, Material culture might be borrowed or appropriated, but not the non-material, and vice versa. For instance, does anyone need a hug? What are the hidden signs underneath this word, hug? Well, some linguists suggest that it comes from the word huga, a Danish word meaning to give courage, comfort, and joy. Huga is built from the Old Norse word, Huger, which later became hug. In Denmark, huga is a cultural ritual designed to engender a cozy, safe, spontaneous, everyday togetherness. Usually around the winter holidays, the family lights candles, gathers around the fire, drinks hot spiced wine, puts away their technology, and sinks into a convivial atmosphere that promotes well-being. In Danish society, huga, as a cultural ritual, reinforces cultural values and traditions. It helps to make Danish culture, well, Danish. Now, after a number of popular lifestyle and self-help books on huga were published in the UK and US, we started to borrow aspects of huga, particularly the material culture. Huga is becoming quite popular in the U.S. Although the material aspect of Huga in the U.S. might be very much the same, the non-material, as it is appropriated and ritualized in a new context, is different. It's like Annie Hall's tie in the first episode. It is code-mixing. Whereas in Danish society, Huga may reinforce cultural conventions. In the U.K. and U.S., it pushes against the hurried pace of fast capitalism. In other words, Huga in the U.S. is critiquing the norm, triggering reflection on the meaning of the word slow. So, with globalization, we see a complex mixing of material and non-material culture. Christmas is huge in Japan, even though Shinto and Buddhism are the two main religions. Here, Japan has borrowed material culture, but not the non-material. Acupuncture is popular in the U.S., although most of the consumers who use it know little about qi flows. 
Again, we see the material and the non-material becoming separated. This is interesting. As cultures diffuse around the world, we witness the emergence of new hybrid interpretations. Of course, multinational corporations, in their search for new markets, accelerate this process. So far, I have emphasized a few key points about culture. First, it consists of historical techniques that help people adapt to challenging environments. Second, it is passed down from generation to generation. Third, storytelling is key to understanding the values of a culture. And finally, culture consists of material artifacts and non-material ideas. Note that I haven't emphasized a simple definition of culture. I'm not sure that this would be the best way of trying to understand this rich, sensitizing concept. Of course, there are some really famous definitions. I already gave you one. The anthropologist Clifford Geertz said that culture is a web of signification. In the famous book, Culture and Society, published in 1958, Raymond Williams suggests that culture is simply a group's particular way of life. This is consistent with our discussion of trying to imagine way of life for the Kalahari Bushmen, the Inuit, executives, and academics. In this book, Williams is trying to draw attention to the day-to-day taken-for-granted flow that characterizes every culture. He describes well the forces and mechanisms that turn the strange into the ordinary. When the history of signs is forgotten and they become habitual, they disappear into the everydayness of life. They become hidden signs. Don Slater, in a book published in 2015 entitled Consumer Culture, proposed that in the modern age, it is difficult to separate culture from consumption. The phrase consumer culture describes how consumption is organized in modern societies. In other words, consumption lifestyles are key to understanding what it means to be modern. This also means that for late modernity, Consumption is the beginning point for critical thought and practice. In other words, in modern society, consumption cannot be disentangled from culture. Consumption and culture are woven together. This is particularly relevant for us since we are talking about marketing and consumer behavior. Remember in my first episode when I was wondering if a cultural theorist could contribute to marketing knowledge? According to Slater, they are one and the same. We can't understand consumption without understanding culture. Clifford Geertz, Raymond Williams, and Don Slater represent a very large group of cultural theorists who are struggling to define and explain this rich concept. I like these definitions of culture, but any single definition feels a bit too narrow. Thus, rather than provide a definition of culture, I want to build a conceptual framework for you. In your journals, draw a triangle or pyramid. Then, draw two horizontal lines separating the pyramid into three sections. In the bottom section, 
the base or foundation, write values. In the middle section, write norms. And in the top section, write control. This is a nice way of thinking about culture. The foundation of culture, the base or bedrock, is what the culture values. Values are deeply historical and enduring. Things that are considered good and desired by a group of people. These are goals we believe in and hope for. Cultural values can be realizable or ideal. They may be expressed for macro cultures, such as American culture. These might be things like personal control over individual destiny, mobility, productive use of time, equality, individualism, competition, and so on. We can also reflect on the values of a subculture, such as the values of your company. Maybe things like integrity, trust, commitment to customers, continuous learning, diversity, innovation, and teamwork. Or we can reflect on the values of a social movement, which propose new visions for culture. For example, the values of third-wave feminism include gender equality, breaking the glass ceiling, body positivity, ending violence against women, freedom to forge identity, environmentalism, and many others. Note that a value like commitment to customers is realizable, and a value like equality is ideal. The point here is that culture begins with values. They serve as the bedrock, the foundation. I should also note that there is rarely full agreement or consensus on values. In fact, people may not be fully aware of when they are contradicting values. The social movement, Black Lives Matter, has encouraged reflection on the hidden signs of systemic racism. For example, words and phrases that we have all used, such as master bedroom, blacklist, peanut gallery, grandfathered in, cakewalk, and sold down the river, all have roots in racist and segregationist ideology. In this way, reflecting on hidden signs can be emancipatory, promoting social change. Now, these values bubble up into standards for behavior. These are norms. The reason that we have similar expectations for behavior is because we share values. The word norm is from the Latin word norma, which was a carpenter's square or pattern used in construction to make regular corners. We now use the word norm for anything that sets a standard. In this case, it is a standard for behavior. If values are the foundation of culture, norms are the wooden framing sitting on top of the foundation, bringing life to the day-to-day -day flow of culture, action, and participation. The small, hidden norms of culture that guide behavior, such as how to greet each other, how to dress, walk down a sidewalk, talk and communicate, or just how to wait for a bus or ride an elevator. These are folkways, literally, ways of the folk. For each cultural context, 
There are hundreds of taken-for-granted folkways that help to maintain social order. Again, I want to emphasize that these folkways are extensions of values. The more serious, less hidden norms that control behavior, such as our laws, are mores. This is still a norm, but a different type of norm. For example, if you are talking to your friend and you stand too close to them, violating their personal space, you are breaking a folkway. But if you assault them, this is more serious. You are breaking a moray. The third type of norm is a taboo. This is unthinkable behavior. Behavior that is prohibited on the basis of ecological, medical, religious, or spiritual justifications. Think of the incest taboo or cannibalism. So, we have three types of norms. Folkways, mores, and taboos. At the top of the pyramid, you see the word control. This is social control. Every culture encourages conformity to their norms, simply because these norms are based on what the culture values. Social control that encourages conformity to folkways, the small hidden rules of the culture, might be facial expressions or body language. It will be symbolic interaction. For example, if I say something inappropriate while lecturing to my students, I will see it in their faces. This gives me a sign that I have done something wrong, broken a folkway, and I'll change my behavior. Social control that encourages conformity to mores, the more serious laws of society, will be institutional. If you break a moray, the police or FBI will come after you. This is also the case for taboos. Think of this pyramid as a rough definition of culture. Culture consists of values, norms, and forms of social control. I should note that this all becomes more complicated when we try to understand a particular culture. Cultures are heterogeneous, layered, and historically complex. They aren't just one thing, and sometimes values may be inconsistent and contradictory. And deviance might even be good, leading to creativity. Annie Hall's tie was an example of breaching a folkway, and it was creative. One thing to remember about culture is that its layered complexity renders it invisible. Like the turtles, it is hidden signs all the way down. In the next episode, I begin to bring together an understanding of culture and hidden signs in an effort to understand iconic brands. Here, I ask the question, what is brand authenticity? This concludes the third episode of Hidden Signs. My name is Jeff Murray. Special thanks to Seth Murray for composing original music for this podcast. Thank you for listening.